Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, banking emergency. How can we avoid a rerun of 2008's global market crash after collapses both sides of the Atlantic? Silicon Valley Bank helped fund major US tech companies for 40 years, but it fell apart in just 48 hours. On March the 8th, the bank announced a $1.8 billion loss from selling securities and needing to raise $2 billion in capital to balance the books. The next day, its share price crashed 60%. Investors and depositors raced to withdraw $42 billion. On March the 10th, shares dropped further. SVB ceased to exist. Banking woes extended across the Atlantic when on March the 15th, troubled giant Credit Suisse said it needed to borrow $54 billion from the Swiss National Bank to strengthen its liquidity. Banking stocks across the continent suffered. On March the 19th, UBS agreed to buy Credit Suisse for $3.3 billion. Remember, this was a bank once worth almost $80 billion. Joining me now is Professor of Economics at Dartmouth College and former member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee, David Blanchefile. Professor, thank you ever so much for, for coming on the agenda. Sure. Now, as we've said there, you're a member of the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England and during your tenure, that's when we had the banking crisis of 2008. Do you see similarities um, now to what happened back then? Well, there are worrying similarities. I mean, in fact, we should probably go back to 2007, uh, when in the UK there was a failure of Northern Rock. And over a weekend, the government had to decide that, that to rescue it and to guarantee depositors, which is what they did, and which is what happened in the last month or so with Silicon Valley Bank. The problem then was that that couldn't really be stopped. So Northern Rock depended on wholesale money markets. We found Bradford and Bingley Alliance and Leicester, and then uh, Royal Bank of Scotland and Lloyds Bank basically um, failing. So once this crisis had, had started, it was pretty hard to stop it. Um, and so that's, that's the worry right now. I mean, we have obviously seen Silicon Valley Bank, we've seen Sovereign, we've seen Credit Suisse. I mean, the worry we're watching right now is what's happening to Schwab. Uh, markets are attacking, the share price is down a lot. So hopefully we're not in that position. But actually, the worry is that we are, and the credit tightening involved with all the stuff that's gone on is a major impact on the global economy. So what we're seeing is basically the whole talk about rate rises is now in full reverse, and we're looking at rate cuts um, coming in the future, coming this year. So the worry is here we go again, um, and we worry that this has been a lot caused by um, central bank failure. You've been quite vocal about, haven't you, um, about that, about what you think the Bank of England should be doing um, amidst all of this banking turmoil, slashing interest rates, stopping selling government bonds. It doesn't look like that's going to happen, though. Well, maybe it actually is. I mean, we've seen this week a really important and interesting talk by a member of the committee, Sylvia Tenreiro, who's basically said that you have to start cutting. There were two dissenters. But I think what's happened is that the central banks have been overtaken by events. Um, they raise rates from a very low level. Remember, rates were, were basically a zero for a decade. And then they suddenly said, oh, we've had these two shocks, these two supply shocks, Ukraine war, the problem over COVID. And now we're going to raise rates like crazy. 
without really any historical precedent or understanding what was happening. So markets are now basically contradicting the, 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 the central banks. In the United States, I was looking at it today, by the end of 2023, markets are pricing in five rate cuts from now. The, the expected rate rise the next meeting looks like that's gone. So we're in full reverse. And I, I argued for some months that this was much like, as we talked about a second ago, much like 2008. And I would have been voted for rate cuts. And as I said, a member of the NPC has already broken ranks and said rate cuts should come. And I think what you'll see is that that's essentially what's going to come. So we're moving away then from what you've previously called groupthink when it comes to the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee. And I wonder if you think that's something that's happening in other central banks around the world too. Well, well, I do. I mean, the worry is that think about how I mean, think for your listeners, how complicated this world is. We have central banks having interest rates at basically at zero and some even Japan now in negative. We have quantitative easing. We've no historical precedent since 1945 to tell us what to do. And what they what do they all do? They say, oh, we've got to look back to 1978 and think that that's what it was like when Volcker was there. And we've got to raise rates. Well, in fact, if you, look at the, if you look at the Fed, in the last 15 years of the governors on the Fed, not a single one of them has ever dissented from a decision. Well, what we've looked at at the Bank of England is that basically they all live in London. I mean, basically, they all live in London. They come with a background of either from the Treasury or from a bank. Several of them now are professors and two of the professors are broken ranks. But basically, it's all right to be think together and be wrong. And I think that what we need here is dissenting voices and voices standing up and saying the emperor has no clothes, the, the naked emperor. In the United States, we haven't seen that. We absolutely have not seen it from the Fed. They've all been going along like nodding donkeys. But at the Bank of England, we've started to see dissent. When what you're going to see is the dissent is going to be right because you're going to start to see very bad data starting to come in. And, and particularly if this thing spread, if this financial crisis spreads. Because, and, and the big deal is that the risk premium around the world has risen after the bondholders at Credit Suisse were wiped out. And if this banking crisis spreads, if it becomes indeed a banking emergency, what's that going to mean for the chances of global recession? Well, the, the obvious problem is that once, you, once this thing starts, it's hard to stop. And then the other thing is what we learned in 1929, think about the 30s, after 2008, think about growth in the period after it. That's that's really likely to be a problem. It's going to impact living standards. But I'm just let me take you to the Bank of England. The Bank of England, even before this thing has hit, in the last in the last um, forecast that it made, it forecast no growth at all for the next three years with the prospect of deflation. And then it raised rates, and the and the Chancellor imposed austerity again so basically the question is if these bad data come in are authorities going to respond in the way that they did in 2008 so central banks did qe cut rates in fact gordon brown led a huge global uh, consensus to raise to, to basically raise public spending so it's not just going to be you know is there a recession the question is are these people who have who've caused this crisis in the first place are they going to do screaming handbrake u-turns and help the ordinary person rather than the banks and i think that's the really dilemma the well-being of the ordinary person and what do you do for banks and do they contradict each other are we seeing though maybe the the end of that sort of easy cash era when it's so cheap to borrow um is there well, a risk well, of another know. credit crisis 
Well, I, I don't know. I mean, what we've seen is that, so think about what happened in Silicon Valley. So for a very long time, we saw interest rates being very low, which meant that institutions could borrow money cheaply. So the central bank never really understood what happens when you, not just when you raise them, but when you raise them from this long floor and you raise them so rapidly. Mm. So what did it do? Basically wiped out much of Silicon Valley and the high tech sector. Um, this had generated, generated impacts on Silicon Valley Bank and probably other banks. Uh, we've seen in the UK within a day of a budget being passed, the trustonomics budget being passed on the Monday, pension, what the entire UK pension sector collapsed. And on the Tuesday, mortgage markets collapsed. So we're now in a world where central banks didn't do their homework. They thought that what happened between 1945 and 2008 would tell them something. Well, it didn't. And the possibility is that because of the crisis hitting, what you'll see is reversal back reversal back of these high interest rates as the two supply shocks that caused inflation disappear and we may well end up having to go back to low interest especially is is um, if what happened in 2010 to 20 occurs which is that fiscal policy was wrong and overly tight central banks had to compensate for that so the, the move to austerity was completely disastrous wrong and that's what forced central banks to keep rates so low and do qe so we will see we will see what comes, but I don't think this era is over because it's just been it's sort of necessitated by errors by policymakers. Let's yeah. talk about regulation because, you know, I thought lots of conversation we've had, we can't have a repeat of 2008 because all of right. these safeguards are in place. We've got all of this regulation and special reg tech um, technology that's going to help the Bank of England and banks all around the world. So is that something that they need more of? Is, has that not been thought through? Well, obviously, the problem is about all the technology, garbage in, garbage out. I mean, it got to a, I used to think, well, speeds of computers were increasing all the time, but it got to a point where it was faster than my brain. I couldn't process it fast enough. But let's just go to the regulation thing. I mean, I would say the one thing that I really learned in 2008 to nine was the need to diversify your portfolio to cover the risk to the downside. So what you saw was a big change in regulation, Dodd-Frank in the United States, where you regulated the big banks, you've made them diversify their portfolios, made them much more, uh, much less vulnerable to shocks. But then in 2018, what you saw was a bipartisan move, you know, signed by Trump, but, but backed by Democrats and, and Republicans, to allow, to basically weaken the regulations of banks under 250 billion. Well, that included, that included uh, Silicon Valley and signature banks. And it ended up that they didn't diversify their portfolios. They ended up buying long bonds whose price collapsed. And then their clients, the, the tech companies, took money out. They had lots of um, uninsured deposits. So that clearly is an issue. And now what we've seen, of course, is a run on these small banks because everybody's taking their vast numbers of people are taking their deposits out and putting them in the big banks or move into money markets. So I think the answer is that the the deregulation was a huge, was hugely in error, um, and that may well be a problem going forward because the Treasury may have to, in the end, guarantee all deposits. But but so it's a lack of regulation. The regulation actually worked. It's certainly true that the big banks look to be places of safety, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, but the smaller ones are the problem. So you'll, if you don't learn from the last crisis, you'll, the, the problem is you'll repeat it, which seems to be what's happening. And the worry is once you've opened Pandora's box. 
can you put the lid back on? And that's what we're basically having a conversation about. And, and the probability is we can't. The probability is you can't put the lid back on. I suppose a lot of those smaller banks build themselves as disruptors to sort of change that reputation of the banking being, um, well, being um, troubled and having to restore that battered, um, battered reputation. Look, we've got UBS swallowing up Credit Suisse. Do you think we're being set up then for more banking consolidation, those smaller banks, those so-called well, disruptors being swallowed up? Well, that's the worry. I mean, obviously, the diversity is it of the a banks... Worry? Well, I think it's a worry. I think that, that in a way we don't really want five big banks. I mean, there is a great benefit of having local banks with special skills. But what have we seen? We saw Signature Bank in New York really focused on construction. We've seen um, uh, Silicon Valley Bank focused on technology. Um, I mean, the danger is if you don't have appropriate regulation for these smaller banks, they, they will fall because people will just pull... Remember, their deposits aren't, aren't guaranteed in these smaller banks, yeah. but we know that the bigger banks are much safer. They, they've set themselves up. You, you, have a, you have, I don't know, $500 million deposits, as Roku did at Silicon Valley Bank. That was under threat until the Treasury guaranteed it. If you have that kind of money, you move it to the big institutions, you move it to money markets. That, those movements threaten the, the, the well-being, threaten the sheer existence, A, of the banks, and B, of the diversity of the banking system. So... You know, that's a debate to be had, but I don't think anybody thinks that we just should see the collapse of you know, regional banks and end up with, you know, five big ones in America, as, as in a sense occurs in the UK. I want to pick on, up on something you said before, you know, how UK pensions almost broke a couple of months ago. In Japan, the Japanese yen has been <laughs> moving by about 30% in a matter of months. In terms of the states, what, $72 trillion of debt there, lots of movement on mortgage-backed security. So what's the risk that, that something that nobody's really paying much attention to is going to pop out and, and break well, well, the system? Well, obviously, the, that's a really big worry. And in fact, we talked a minute ago about Credit Suisse and UBS. And the, and the Swiss government had to give UBS, I think it was 9 billion Swiss francs, for the kind of things that they might find when they open the hood of the bank up and find what's sitting there. I mean, it's in a sense we have the known, the known unknowns, and in this case, the unknown unknowns. I mean, I mean that's part of the problem that, that Schwab has had, trying to reassure people that it's a different bank, to, it's a different institution than Silicon Valley, that it's safe and, uh, and so on. So I think, I think the danger is, what are, what are banks holding? What are these undisclosed... Um, holdings that they have, you know, what, what about our, our, I mean, if you raise rates, then people are going to, people are going to default. I mean, a good story to tell you is apparently in America, when people, people got their, uh, their, their payments during COVID because of lockdown, what they did was they went out and bought cars. They, they leased cars, bought cars. Well, then after lockdown and those furlough payments went, they no longer can afford them. So now you see defaults on the car loans. So, what are, are banks who are holding mortgages and car loans and they're holding long bonds uh, and, and maybe they're undisclosed, that's worrying. And what we, what we don't know is, I think, the biggest concern, but the fact that, that UBS needed 9 billion Swiss francs to be put in and had 100 billion that they could go to suggests that other institutions are probably holding the same. And the speed that the pension sector collapsed one day Look, it was the budget on Friday, they collapsed on one day and the Bank of England had to intervene. So the worry is that many banks, many financial institutions around the world are sitting holding bad stuff 
The benefit is if interest rates start to fall, as I think they're going to, that's actually a really good thing because think of the Silicon Valley Bank, their holdings of long treasuries rise as the values rise as the, as the interest rates fall. So this is very much at the door of the central banks. They cause much of this. I hold it in entirely responsible for wrongly raising rates to the speed that they did and thinking that the inflation was demand-driven when it was supply-driven. So this is at the door of the central banks. It's at the door of the MPC. It's at the door of the Fed. It's at the door of the ECB. Professor David Blanchflower, thank you very much. Thank you. In times of financial turmoil, it's not just central banks that need to intervene. Governments need to ensure they do all they can to keep their national and global economies on track. So have they got it right this time? Joining me now is former Canadian Finance Minister Joe Oliver. Well, thanks ever so much for coming on the agenda. Now, I wonder, watching the markets wobble and banking stocks sink, did you think, here we go again, or were you assured that enough safeguards have been put in place to prevent a rerun of 2008? Well, initially, of course, uh, like a lot of people, I was quite concerned because we've, we've seen this, this movie before. But I will say the, the regulators and uh, the governments acted very quickly because what they wanted, of course, is, is to avoid a, a systemic uh, problem to the banking system, which is, a cru of course, uh, crucial to all the uh, national economies. And what you had in the United States at the Silicon Valley Bank and later the, the, the Signature Bank was essentially a run on deposits. And that happens when depositors uh, start to fear uh, that the bank is going under and they can't get uh, their money out. And very few banks have enough liquid assets to sustain a major run on, on their banks. And, and what, uh, what prevents that from happening, of course, is, is confidence that the bank isn't going to get into trouble. But... Uh, depositors became aware that the Silicon Valley Bank had some uh, severe uh, credit problems. And uh, what had happened there is that uh, they had a, a large uh, portfolio of assets that were in uh, bonds. They were, they were in government bonds, so they were credit uh, worthy. There was no problem about that. But interest rates were going up, and when interest rates go up, uh, the value of, of the bonds would go down. So at the same time uh, their assets were declining in value, uh, the amount of interest that they had to pay on deposits was increasing. And so they were being squeezed. And this was, uh, this was a, uh, an indication of, of poor management. It was also, I should say, an indication of poor regulatory uh, oversight. Um, the, the San Francisco Fed, which is the regional organization that oversees banks in the United States. You've mentioned that maybe there was some oversight there from the federal regulators. Right. Um, do, do, do you think that enough was, was in place? Because there's an, been an assumption that we would never have a 2008 banking crisis again. Well, yeah, I, I don't know if one could assume that, but one, you know, one was very confident about that. But in this case, what, what, the, uh, what the government did is say, okay, uh, it's only 250000 but we're going to extend it to all depositors. And once they made that decision, of course, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the panic uh, evaporated because everyone knew that uh, if you have the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, uh, you're yeah. going to be fine. But, but the, you know, the end result, of course, is that that bank's uh, 
equity or you know the value of their stock uh, you know collapse and um, you know they uh, uh, you know the, the management was of course uh, removed and and it was taken over uh, elsewhere so the, the point you know to, to answer the question directly is that the the bank um, was was saved by very quick government reaction uh, to uh, you know to, to bail out uh, basically, the, the depositors. Now, Credit Suisse also, as you know, uh, had a major problem. And the way that was solved was the uh, the Swiss government made sure that UBS, which is a much bigger, the other big, the other major Swiss bank, but much bigger uh, and not in financial difficulty, took it over. So, problem solved in the uh, in the immediate term, uh, but there there are some long term reverberations and if you want me to discuss that I, I can. In terms of banks and, and banking, how is it best to strike the balance between politics and central banks? Well, I, I wouldn't you know, characterize it as, as, as exactly a political, although clearly there's a political uh, implication there because the banking system uh, collapses. Uh, investors are going to be very afraid and very angry, and they're going to take it out on, on the government, which is supposed to be overseeing them. So uh, what you want to have, which must have, is a strong regulatory system, like, may I say, what we have in, in Canada, uh, where the rules are, are stringent and where uh, the banks uh, follow the rules, sometimes uh, even go farther than the regulation requires them to. If they become imprudent, as happened uh, in the United States and, and uh, in Switzerland, and it's combined with a bit of management incompetence, then you've got a problem. And then uh, sometimes the, uh, the government has to, uh, has to uh, jump in to save them. Now, they, they introduced the mechanism uh, to, to make that less likely. Uh, they required a lot of banks, uh, all the banks, really, to... to uh, issue what, what are called uh, contingent bonds or, uh, you, you know, that, that were, were conver automatically converted by the regulator into equity if the bank was starting to get into trouble. So what happened then is the debt decreased and the equity increased, and so the bank should be in, in, in better shape. Uh, than it was uh, before. Of course, the the, uh, the debt holders in, in this case were were severely uh, diluted, uh, or in the case of, of uh, Credit Suisse, were were actually uh, completely wiped out, and the equity would fall even more. But at least the depositors would be uh, would be saved, and they're the the ones really uh, that need uh, protection because the average person who puts money in a in a bank uh, isn't speculating. They expect to get their money back with with a bit of interest, and if that doesn't happen, um, there's uh, there's a feeling, and quite rightly, uh, that something went wrong at the bank and uh, uh, at the regulatory uh, side, which they would of course blame on on the government. <laughs> so that's another mechanism to to try to deal with a faltering bank. Uh, but um, it, uh, it's, it's important, but it doesn't uh, solve the problem uh, entirely. It makes it, uh, it makes a catastrophe uh, far less likely. Well, when it comes to, to Canada, you've said that there have been some missed opportunities, misguided priorities and 
counterproductive <coughs> policies. Now, I wonder if you think that that translates to Europe, to, to the United States, and to other parts of the world. Yes, I mean, Canada's situation is, is, a, is a little bit different and in some respects a, a, a bit worse. But, but the, the problems, that, uh, there's a common theme here. Governments have been uh, spending more than they have. They've been going into debt. I mean, sometimes uh, for, for good reasons. Uh, when the, uh, of course, COVID pandemic hit and, and businesses were closed, often mandated uh, to be closed by, by governments, uh, there, there needed to be a, a, a social security uh, support for, for, for people. Joe Oliver, thank you very much. You're most welcome. You can watch every episode of The Agenda in full on CGTN Europe's YouTube channel. And for exclusive extra content from me, my guests and the rest of the team, don't forget to check out at The Agenda Show on TikTok. But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all the Agenda team here in London, goodbye.